Good evening. What is it? The final stretch in a racetrack? Yes, six weeks straight. Come every Monday. Almost in the mail to the Friends of the Book Arts Press is an invitation to the 1985 Bowker Lecture, which uh, will be held on Monday the 8th of April at 4 o'clock, meaning a very stimulating day for those who wish also to hear Alec Wilson, who is speaking from this podium at 6 o'clock on the same afternoon. This means that you'll have to cut your reception time short after the Bowker Lecture if you wish to take in all of the array of treats arranged for you on this date. That's Monday, April 8 at 4 o'clock in the McGraw-Hill Auditorium, as usual. As I say, the friends will get an announcement about this, and uh, I will bore my own students on this subject on a future occasion. Oh, I beg your pardon. The Bowker Lecture in 1985 is being given by George Steiner, who is, according to my invitation, a writer, scholar, and lecturer. Practically a household word. Our speaker this evening is uh, practically a household word at this podium as well. David McKittrick from the University Library of Cambridge has spoken here many times before. I only regret that so many times when he comes, his poster is fraught with disaster. Those of you who are interested in such things can see the latest disaster repaired as best I could after the type had been distributed out in the hallway. He speaks uh, this evening on the history of university libraries. David McKittrick. Thank you very much, Terry. I should say that the bibliographers ought to have spotted the paste-on cancel on that poster, which I was delighted to have as an example of the pitfalls of printers from the 15th century onwards. Well, as you know, Terry has a knack of catching more or less every bibliographic, bibliographical scholar or librarian, especially from England, that dares set foot this side of the Atlantic. But as his latest victim, I fall willingly into the net and I'm very glad to be here again this evening. And I'm glad to have this opportunity to reflect on some aspects of library history as they've affected me over the last few years and as they affect, are going to affect me in the next few years as I change course. Because for the last 10 years or so, I've been engaged on the history of the oldest university library in Great Britain, the Cambridge University Library, a library which, partly because of its age, um, is also one of the greatest national collections of new and old books. Well, with this history now behind me, I'm about, about to embark on the history of the Cambridge book trade more generally, starting in the 1530s and working eventually up, I'm afraid, to 1970, but that's not until the 1990s. And it seems appropriate to see what one kind of history that has traditionally followed a rather separatist existence can offer to another. Much has been made in the last few years in parts of the English-speaking world about the apparent lack of archival material relating to the book trade. We don't, for example, possess the police records which are so celebrated in France and which people like Martin insist on us going to to answer our questions. 
In England, the records of the Stationers' Company in London are a small consolation to those who don't think very, very long. They relate virtually entirely to a small band of monopolists whose principal contact with the rest of the country outside London seem to occur as far as the records are concerned solely when their rights or properties are being threatened. Booksellers' records are also generally scanty before the mid-19th century and not particularly common even in the second half of the 19th century. The exceptions, such as those of Bernard Quaritch Limited, which are partly at Oxford and partly still with the firm in London, and for Henry Stevens of Vermont, a more familiar name this side, divided up now between Ann Arbor, Burlington and Los Angeles, are not only notable, they're conspicuous. Moreover, thanks to the concentration of the principal English publishers other than the, than the two old university presses at Oxford and Cambridge, within a few hundred square yards to the north of St. Paul's Cathedral, the bombs of the Second World War saw to it that much of what had been kept since the early 18th century as of some archival interest or significance did not survive to be fully studied today. This background has little to do with library history, you'll say, but it has to be constantly remembered in the study of the English book trade and of the study of the history of the book in England more generally. Much can, of course, be reconstructed from other sources. During World War II, many of the Nonsuch press records were destroyed. But the printing of the press's books can be traced when we were writing the history of the Nonsuch press a few years ago, through the printer's records elsewhere, the correspondence traced through files elsewhere that have survived, in two crucial archives, one of them actually in this building. In Washington, moreover, the survey which is now being undertaken by Alice Schreier of archives relating to the history of the book trade are a present reminder that the book trade historian, like any other historian, should be prepared to look round him just as much as he looks at what seemed to be his most obvious primary material. In this reconstruction, the history of libraries, and I speak here unashamedly of national and academic libraries, is uniquely important. Partly because they are trained to preserve what they have, partly because they work with organizations which expect to accumulate archives, librarians seem more reluctant than many other professions to discard their working papers. Until the advent of the card catalogue in the 19th century, it was almost a habit to shelve simply as more books, the old, outdated catalogues in codex form. Admissions registers, shelf lists, borrowing lists, financial records, correspondence of all kinds can all be reckoned to be almost standard in the archives of the larger libraries. Moreover, being of a literary turn of mind, some librarians kept diaries. Sir Frederick Madden's vast, detailed and opinionated account of his daily work at the British Museum in the 19th century is exceptional. But it's the same kind of thing as the journal of one Joseph Romilly, the 19th century registrary at Cambridge University, who acted for a time as deputy librarian during the illness of his friend, the librarian John Lodge, and during that time had to show Queen Victoria around the building. 
with a few honourable exceptions, and I think here of the Bodleian Library, Göttingen, and so on, the, these archives represent a seriously under, understudied aspect of book trade history. Long series of accounts offer the chance for comparisons between different periods and different dealers, different practices in marketing, different methods of acquisition, different customs in different countries, quite apart from the purchasing institution's own inclinations as expressed by its staff and recorded in what was bought. In the history of scholarship and reading habits, it is also essential, though, to recognize what limitations exist at particular times and how these limitations can be overcome now and how they were overcome at the time by contemporary readers. I shock you, I hope, by saying that Cambridge University Library possessed no copy of the first edition of Newton's Principia until 1715, which I make 28 years after publication. No one supposes the copies were not available in Cambridge. Similarly, and to put forward an even more extreme example, it possessed no printed copy of the English Bible until the mid-17th century. Thanks to the work of Sears Jane, the general features of the contrast between the library collection, the public collection, and the ordinary private collection in the English Renaissance uh, is reasonably clear. In Cambridge, the inventories of booksellers' stocks in the 16th and early 17th centuries reflect much more accurately the ordinary preoccupations of the mass of the university body than the collections either in the college libraries or in the university library. Our understanding of the ownership and circulation of books will almost certainly be transformed when Elizabeth Leedham Green publishes her study of the detailed inventories post-mortem for this period of book owners in the 16th and early 17th century. Though even then we shall still know little enough about ownership amongst the student body. The example of the Emmanuel College undergraduate called Samuel Dyke whose library was seized by his tutor in 1639 for debt, is, from our point of view, distressingly rare. Like many other students, Dyke's most valuable book was his Greek lexicon. But amongst the standard university textbooks of the time, there were also to be found works by Thomas Hayward and a copy of Nicholas Ling's collection of apothegms, Wits Commonwealth. That's out of the archives, and archives are, of course, essential. But so, too, is an appreciation of the physical surroundings. It seems now extraordinary that in 1901, the great library historian John Willis Clark was able to say at the opening of his pioneering and still standard study of library arrangement, bibliography, it must be understood, will be wholly excluded. From my special point of view, books are simply things to be taken care of. Hence the title, The Care of Books. Our methods, purposes, and expectations have changed considerably since then. The chaining of books has obvious repercussions for our current interpretation of bibliography, which is a term, I think, now seen to be linked in intimately with the reading of books. Library architecture is a legitimate aspect of this study, as the experience was the expression of aspirations. One need look no further than the Library of Congress, the 
the ceiling there, the entrance to this building, the Beinecke Library, or the neoclassical statement made in the King's Library of the British Museum. Each arrangement, each library ornamentation tells us something, not only about the status of books in a given community, but also of the manner in which they were expected to be approached. Library history has changed, but so too have the ways in which we now see it can be exploited in the service of the larger goal of book history. In all this, some questions are straightforward, even if their answers are not. Who has been responsible for building up the collections? Who have been the principal benefactors? What are the sources, if any, of financial support? I say, if any, we had no source of financial support in Cambridge University Library until the 1670s. Who was responsible for the building? Who have been trustees? For what books or collections is the library in question especially notable? Other questions, sometimes extraordinarily, are ignored and are a little bit more subtle. What made this library seem necessary in the first place? How accurate or comprehensive are its catalogues? How does it compare with other libraries locally? With other libraries having similar purposes or collections elsewhere? In this country? In other countries? Then there are general questions as to the stock. How exactly has the collection been as assembled? Which booksellers have been involved and why? How far were these booksellers acting on their own or as agents for others? The practice of agency selling was so commonplace in the early 19th century and was so open to abuse that in 1820 John Boone, the London bookseller, was moved to complain of this material injury to his reputation. In Cambridge at least, and for years later, orders from many a second-hand German bookseller's catalogue were channeled through a local bookseller. To return to our questions, what other methods of acquisition such as bidding at auction or amalgamation with other collections have been pursued. How have these differed in one period compared with another period? What effect has legislation on censorship, import duties or in appropriate circumstances copyright deposit had on the library's holdings? Was the effect the same in similar institutions elsewhere? This is often enough for the overworked historian. But we are only now, I think, beginning to approach the crucial questions. What readers have expected to use the collections? Who actually have? For what purpose? Exactly which books have they used? How far has the library's management dictated preferences amongst readers for one book, collection, or library rather than another? Some of you will remember Robert Danton's communication circuit, which was published in Daedalus a few years ago. It's a diagram that puts libraries in the middle, uh, in the in orbit, as it were, around a large, in a point at a large circle, in the same box as book clubs and purchasers and borrowers of books, under the general umbrella of readers. And Danton here attempted to compartmentalise the history of the book in rather a suggestive and useful way. And by placing within this orbit, the, rather than putting it in another box on the outside, 
various general topics such as intellectual influences and political and legal sanctions. I use his own terms. Danton also sought to express the less particular aspects of his subject, those that affected readers, production and distribution alike. His scheme is a valuable reminder of the context in which we work, but it, I don't think, should be taken to be universally applicable, or to suggest that libraries have enjoyed, or do enjoy, relations with publishers, printers, or smugglers, only at one or two removes. Indeed, Danton himself hesitates, having constructed his model largely on the basis of 18th century continental book trade. He said, I'm not arguing that book trade history should be written according to a standard formula, but trying to show how its disparate segments can be brought together within a single conceptual scheme. Different book historians might prefer different schemata. Differences do indeed exist between book historians and between orthodoxies, but the difference between what is available in the way of evidence in one library compared with another is no less inescapable. Different examples, too, demand different approaches. National libraries, university libraries, college libraries, research libraries, monastic libraries, school libraries, parish libraries, and dozens of other kinds of collections assembled with as many dozen different purposes all require different approaches and will fit into the communication chain in different ways. In 1836, Antonio Pinizzi gave evidence to the Royal Commission on the British Museum and adumbrated then what became the basis of the greatest library of the 19th century. But he saw a distinction between the British Museum Library and Göttingen University Library which had been held up as an example. The Library of Göttingen, he said, is a university library. It is a library for the education of the per persons attending the university and not a national institution like that of the British Museum. It is not a library for research, as ours ought to be, the British Museum, but a library for education. They ought not, therefore, to be conducted on the same principles. The distinction drawn between, by Pinizzi between a university library committed to the current needs of the university and the National Library, not only of universal reference, but also the depository of the national literature in its widest sense, was a neat one for the occasion, but oversimplified for me in its juxtaposition of two very different foundations. For a library such as that at Cambridge University, which I've had to cope with, this contrast between two violently opposed purposes reflects only the almost impossible challenge that the library has faced since the 17th century. To be at once a national library of copyright deposit, a library with large collections of historic material, and an open access lending library, able to meet the needs with current books, both British and foreign, for whatever members of the university for the time being are allowed to use it. The task has, of course, become even more complicated since undergraduates were allowed into the building without any restrictions from the mid-19th century. And the historical process has shown a still further turn of speed with changes in teaching methods and a great, greatly enlarged university over the last half century. In the 1870s, 
only a century ago, the teaching methods of Charles Kingsley, who was a not altogether successful Regis Professor of Modern History, and Sir John Seeley, caused some surprise in that they encouraged pupils to develop their critical and exploratory skills rather than remain with one or two textbooks. And this meant using the university library in a way that it never had been in its previous centuries. I allude to the problems raised by Charles Kingsley and John Seeley deliberately and place them next to the current questions deliberately. In one sense, any library history, perhaps any history, but certainly any institutional history, can be looked at in the rather innocent way that was once presented to me in conversation. How we got to where we are now. This apart, there is the wider question of book history in general, as a continuum where many of the experiences of one generation are shared with another. In the words of somebody in this room, we need to learn not to draw a line between our own use of books in the present and the situation faced by people in the past when they used books. Thirdly, because the elements in a community such as a university change comparatively little, a proper alertness to current questions can prompt us to ask pertinent questions of the past. I want now to move away from this slightly to the long-established and indeed honourable tradition in the history of libraries to concentrate on high spots, major collections, important textual or illuminated manuscripts, notable benefactors. And this tradition ignores the key questions that relate to the institution's more humdrum everyday existence, its relations with its contemporaries, its readers' expectations and experiences, or the way in which it was made to work in buildings which, however ostentatious, had also to serve as its home. By way of example, and in order not to make more enemies, I look again to Cambridge, to Henry Bradshaw, outstanding alike as incunabulist, paleographer, liturgiologist, and certainly, in terms of his international reputation, the greatest university librarian ever to have served the university. In 1869, he wrote a brief history of the University Library for publication in a new, rather left-wing, newspaper called the Cambridge University Gazette. It's the first accurate history of the collections and presents a considerably less confused picture than that in C.H. Hartshorn's book, The Book Rarities of the University of Cambridge, a disorganized compilation much influenced by Thomas Frognall Dibdin that appeared in 1829. Bradshaw's interests were on this occasion almost wholly antiquarian. He was an outstanding incunabulist, but even his colleague and biographer, G.W. Prothero, did not feel able completely to conceal his failings as a librarian outside the spheres of manuscripts and early printed books. His term of office, he died in 1886, having been librarian from 1867, was in sharp contrast to those of his predecessors under whom the library's collections of modern books, acquired other than under copyright legislation, had multiplied on a scale seen never before and rarely since. By the late 1860s, most of the battles over copyright deposit were, at least for the moment, at rest. And it was because, perhaps, of this 
that Bradshaw was able to write his history, which remained the longest continuously written account until the 1950s, and not mention at all the licensing acts of the 1660s or the Copyright Act of 1710, which are the bases of current legislation for copyright deposit and which have dominated library planning ever since the mid-18th century. Bradshaw's achievement, particularly in unearthing the earliest history of the library, on which Hartshorn had been notably weak, was a formidable one and the result of very long labours in the university archives. And it would be wrong, nor do I for a moment wish, to belittle Bradshaw's work on which we still stand today. That it described only one aspect of the library's history and purpose. It gave no hint that any research library of this kind acquires some books as rarities and some books simply become rarities through surviving on the shelves. Nor did he allude at all to the arguments surrounding the library's place and purpose in the 19th century university, a place made much more complicated by the fact that from the early 19th century onwards the library was keeping all copyright deposit books rather than throwing them away and it had to fight with other large university departments, especially the new laboratories being set up, for a limited amount of money. The omission seems all the odder if it is realised that only in 1852, 17 years previously, the Royal Commission on the University had included the library in its investigations at, into the whole of the university's institutions. Bradshaw wrote in the wake of W. D. McRae's Annals of the Bodleian Library, first published in 1868. McRae, too, working for Oxford, had emphasized the place of special collections or single antiquarian acquisitions at the expense of the day-to-day -day administration of the Copyright Act. McRae had also been able to draw on a much larger archive than had Bradshaw when he worked on, on the Cambridge history, despite the Bodleian Library's comparatively late foundation date of 1598, whereas at Cambridge, I'm glad to point out to everyone that can bear to listen, we've had a continuous existence since the late 14th century. By way of example, in this lack of library archives for the, for the early period, for the early years of the 18th century, for example, the best record of acquisitions independent of the books themselves lies in the bills submitted by successive local bookbinders, which were preserved with the same obsessive zeal that led to the survival of the vouchers, bills, and other documents made familiar to us by Don Mackenzie in his study of the first years of the Cambridge University Press. The library is, of course, by no means unique in not possessing full records of donations. Much of it as in any other many other libraries, has to be reconstructed. But on the other hand, in 1664, Henry Lucas, the Member of Parliament for the University, bequeathed his entire collection of books to the University Library. And thanks to the meticulous habits of the then library keeper, a man called Jonathan Pinder, who spent part of his time cataloguing books and part of his time dusting the shelves and sweeping the floor, we have a complete list of Lucas's books compiled at the time of their arrival. 
Lucas's very considerable assemblage cannot be reconstructed from this list and from his useful habit of writing his name or his initials apparently on the flyleaf of almost every book he owned. From this evidence, a portrait emerges of a man with a wide range of modern interests, including the sciences, a penchant for contemporary poetry, and an enthusiasm for books in French and Italian. Lucas's books, bought apparently in London rather than in the provinces, for he spent most of his adult life in the capital, though he was to be buried in his parish church just outside Cambridge, are, however, of additional interest. Thanks to the relatively careful use, or should I say relative lack of use, made of them over the last several centuries, most of them are still in their original bindings. Bindings that are certainly not attributable to Cambridge repairers subsequent to the bequest, but rather to earlier work, either in or predating Lucas's own lifetime. Besides his name or initials, Lucas also wrote in many of the books the price he paid for them. And there thus survives at Cambridge several hundred examples of bound priced books dating from the 16th and 17th centuries, many of them incidentally with their date of purchase as well. Now since much of the evidence that we have for the price of books in the early 17th century is made tenuous by the fact that we know little or nothing about how elaborate a binding, if any, was being paid for, collections such as those of Henry Lucas are of particular value. These copies tell us far more than could be drawn from a bookseller's catalogue, whether it's Robert Scott's or somebody else's, and more than accounts could, all that is missing really are the name of the, is the name of the booksellers concerned. It's too easily forgotten, I fear, that libraries are not only collections of books to be read, they are also the repositories for book trade history in their museum function as well. In the context of their readership and in preserving historically documented copies, they also provide exactly that precision which is essential to the responsible study of book history of which Professor Tansell spoke in his Haynes Lecture in 1981. These copies tell us far more than can be drawn from a bookseller's catalogue, as I've said. And in the libraries of copyright deposit in England, there is an obvious responsibility to look particularly at the deposit books. They are akin to the collections of botanical type specimens, the definitive examples in the classification of plants. Botanical gardens with their meticulous recording of provenance and date of sowing or planting for their specimens illustrate the point similarly to move from botany to bibliography. One of the conclusive pieces of evidence against Thomas James Wise's forgery of Swinburne's poem Siena, dated 1868, was that it did not match the copyright deposit copies, which could be demonstrated to have been in their respective libraries since 1868 itself. The importance of these deposit copies thus turns partly on the specific dates which can be assigned to their movements. A few, and only a few, of the more alert bibliographers have been in the habit of citing the dates stamped into copies of the British in the British Library, where it has been the custom to use accession stamps since 1833. 
At Cambridge, date stamps have been used since 1870. But the picture in these and other copyright deposit libraries is inevitably a complicated one which we need to know more about. Made the more so by the gradual collapse of arrangements in the first part of the 19th century for entry in the stationers' registers. And by the fact that until 1875, I'm sorry, until 1815, the great bulk of copyright deposit books were delivered to Cambridge only twice a year, in March and in September. In other words, you need to go back to the stationers' registers uh, and then work forwards, but the registers' date are the important ones. In order to be able to apply the information gleaned from copyright records properly to book history, some understanding of libraries' accessions procedures is essential. Practices, of course, vary. And have changed many times over the centuries. Cambridge University Library, for example, has been a copyright deposit with a break of only a few years when the relevant legislation was allowed to lapse since the first licensing acts of 1662. Records for the 17th century are scanty and the series is continuous really only from about 1760 onwards. Under the terms of successive legislation which itself restricted the books eligible for, for the university libraries to those that were actually entered in the stationers' registers in London and so omitted by far the greater proportion of 18th century English books, the libraries were allowed to select what they deemed appropriate to reject the rest even after the booksellers or publishers had deposited the requisite number of copies for the time being at Stationers Hall. Although criticised from time to time, principally by members of the book trade who objected to giving away so many books and they had to give any away anything up to 11, this selection procedure was not disgraced until 1818. The 1814 Copyright Act which was passed after Cambridge had successfully prosecuted a printer for failing to deposit one of his products, transformed the library with unprecedented quantities of books, pamphlets, periodicals, on a scale with which they were wholly unequipped to cope and much of it of a kind for which they had very little sympathy in the university community. Cambridge had been in the habit of selling off unwanted arrivals as waste paper from 1751 onwards. And the volte-face that took place in 1816 was more in the nature of self-defense before the law than a fresh awareness of the responsibilities of a copyright library for the preservation of the national literary heritage, good, bad, or indifferent. So, in February that year, the library syndics, the university body responsible for the management of the library, resolved that there should be two classes of books, those which were received into the library, that is, catalogued, classified, and made generally available, and those that were not. The books which are not received into the library, they decided, should, should not be sold or exchanged. That means that Jane Austen survived kept in the bowels of the library to be recatalogued along with these other unwanted books accessible if necessary until they were properly catalogued in the middle of the 19th century. Ostensibly the two university libraries at Oxford and Cambridge together with the British Museum Library joined at various times by libraries in London, Edinburgh, Dublin and so on 
all received books in the same way. Until in 1842, the British Museum was granted a special status. But even before then, the overlap between the, between the different libraries seems to have been startlingly, startlingly narrow. Some of these differences were pointed up by David Fox in the census of copies in his bibliography of English First from 1701 to 1750, where the clue to deposit copies is in whether or not they are, as they're supposed to have been under the Act of 1710, on large paper. From poetry to prose, the deposit copy of the first edition of Gulliver's Travels, sold at the Sion College sale in 1977, and still for sale in London, nobody's found about, bought it yet, acquired some notoriety at the time, and in 1978 was alleged to be one of only four surviving deposit copies, the others being at the British Library, the Bodleian Library, and Glasgow University Library. The census can be slightly enlarged by the copy at Cambridge, which somehow escaped the, the census made in 78. But in the first years after the passing of the 1710 Act, both Cambridge and the Bodleian Library rejected quantitative material, Cambridge, I think, rejecting rather more than Oxford. The detailed study of Oxford's decisions has been made by John Chalmers, but similar ones remain to be done for the other copyright libraries. It may be that after due allowance has been made for subsequent additions to the stocks of the various libraries that the 18th and 19th century short title catalogues will provide further comparative material. But preliminary investigation of the early years of the 19th century suggests that out of a total of 4,000 odd editions investigated in the period 1801 to 1815, only 46 were held by the five copyright libraries investigated. If correct, this conclusion suggests that we may be mistaken in our assumption that each of the national libraries, more or less connected to the academic community, sought much the same kind of book. As the demand for, of the deposit libraries outside London became heavier and the publishing trade larger and more complex in the early 19th century, the deposit arrangements established by generations of legislation via the stationers' company creaked more and more with neither the stationers' company responsible for the collection, registration, and onward delivery of the books, nor the libraries content. The libraries finally met the problem by the establishment of a copyright agency by Oxford, Cambridge, Dublin, and Edinburgh in 1861. This agency's archives, recording the dates of receipt of books from publishers, and arranged invaluably in alphabetical order of publisher, are now housed at Cambridge. They don't always provide exact dates of publication, which can often be traced more readily in the Athenaeum or magazines like it, or the trade's own publisher's circular. But they do, again, provide dates of when precisely identifiable copies existed. I emphasize precisely identifiable copies deliberately because I hope that by now I have made clear the connection between an understanding of library history and bibliographical investigation in the narrow sense of attention to questions surrounding particular books. These questions have the merit of being able to be put in neat terms and answered, if at all, with similar neatness. 
other questions of wider import are less easy, as I've already hinted. Despite our assured assumptions today, it is not always possible to decipher the raison d'etre of collections in the past. Few institutions or their guardians thought it necessary to adumbrate the principles of their everyday life. In this, Göttingen is exceptional and the Bodleian Library peculiar in that we possess a considerable correspondence between its anxious founder, Sir Thomas Bodley, and his no less anxious first librarian, Thomas James. For most of the time, deeds rather than words must serve. But in the 1630s, Archbishop Lord was frank as to his hopes that the manuscripts he gave to his university would form the basis for a series of scholarly editions to be printed at the Oxford Press. In the 1780s at Cambridge, on the other hand, public expressions of hope that the Greek manuscripts acquired at the auction of Anthony Askew's library in 1785 would serve similarly for the Cambridge Press are considerably more difficult to find. The best clue is that the press put up the money for their purchase, even though very little was done with them. As far as I know, it was the last time that the university press bought medieval manuscripts for the university library. So you ought to try again. Above all, however, there remains the difficulty of assessing the library's contribution to those who used it, whether for research or for recreation. Borrowing registers are all too rare in library history, and some libraries, such as the Bodleian and the British Museum, don't lend books in any case. In Cambridge, thanks partly to a system introduced in the mid-19th century that is based on ephemeral slips of paper about four and a half inches square, the Cambridge University Library records on this point are poor. But the records that do exist when they changed the regulations briefly in 1846 to 1847 are a warning of the difficulties inherent in this kind of evidence. Joseph Romilly, the man who I mentioned earlier as showing Queen Victoria around the library, fellow of Trinity College, University Registry, and widely remembered, according to the Dictionary of National Biography, as the friend of the geologist Adam Sedgwick, borrowed not only books for himself, but quantities of novels for his lady friends by Fanny Burney, Mrs. Gore, Frederica Bremer, Susan Ferrier, and so on. No geology. Because his diary has survived, we know that he devoted a good deal of time to seeing that his lady friends were properly su supplied from the novel room, and there's a separate room for novels in the library. But it is impossible to do more than speculate about which of the dozens of books taken out between June 1846 and October 1847 were for himself alone. On the other hand, some of the contributions from libraries can be seen with no very great difficulty, such as the extent to which manuscripts have served editors of printed editions, where their readings are recorded or other remarks are made. It is equally possible to assess, though it may take a little longer, the contribution of collections of papers or books to historical scholarship. The early 18th century historian John Stripe, for example, for all his faults as a historian, was courteous as well as usually careful to record his documentary sources for his work on the English Reformation. In the 19th century, R.G. Usher has left an amusing account of S.R. Gardiner's methods of work in the British Museum, 
writing his history of the English Civil War straight from the sources, volume by volume along the shelf, taking no notes beforehand, reading the books simply as they came to him in order, and writing the history of the English Civil War in that order. Here in America, we can be a little more courteous to, to historians and remember the remarks made by the Beinecke librarian in seeing the library's purposes um, being served by the various institutional or semi-institutional projects which are housed in the Beinecke library. These are all part of the interlocking of library history and the history of scholarship of which Ian Willison has written. So I think he cast his argument on a rather larger scale than I would. In a university context, the interaction between library, scholarship, politics and economics is easy to see, if not always very easy of record, as the laboratory, to borrow the word used by Professor Fabian in his recent study of German research libraries, the national or other co cooperative enterprise is straightforward. To extrapolate its precise contribution compared with the contribution of others is much more difficult. In London, such an exercise would involve, for a start, the London Library and the specialist research libraries of the university or the learned societies. In Cambridge, as in many other university towns, it raises questions about college and departmental libraries. The history of scholarship, and I include here in this context the slightly different pursuits of reading and education, also involve questions about private book ownership, about the local book trade, about new and second-hand booksellers, about their sources of supply, and the selections of books on their shelves. For Cambridge, as elsewhere, it involves too the history of the university press, which in 1586 was enjoined to give one copy of every book published at the press to the university library, and which for two short periods in its history has even been headed by the university librarian. In reviewing Mary Burr's Hall's recent account of the Royal Society in the 19th century, Roy Porter remarked, not altogether incorrectly, on the present unfashionableness of institutional history. He said, in revolt against Wiggery's celebration of English gradualism, slowly broadening down from precedent to precedent, Cleo is currently a catastrophist, preoccupied not with institutional progress, but with revolution and crisis. If by institutional history, Roy Porter really means some forms of old-fashioned official history, it's difficult to, to disagree with him. But the point of library history, as it has been developed in some quarters over the last ten years or so, whether in Philadelphia or Göttingen, is that these various institutions are being studied not only for the sake of their progress, they also both provide the context for much wider developments in human activity. And so far from being divorced in these studies from other parallel developments in the book trade or the book world generally, have properly pursued a very great deal to offer indeed to the study of book history. As so often, it is simply a, a matter of asking the right questions at the right place. Thank you very much. <laughs>